Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I really don't like this concept of teaching people to see the person and not the disability. Then why can't people see a person with a disability and not freak out or not feel uncomfortable? You know, it's like that weird backhanded compliment that we get when people say, you know, oh, I don't think of you as disabled because you're my friend or you're really cool or because you're just like me. And can we not be all of those things? Can we not be cool and likeable and people's friends but not also be proud of our disabilities? I kind of hope that we can. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Linda Barclay about disability with dignity. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Beth. Could you give us some background information about yourself? Sure. So I first did a Bachelor of Arts degree uh, with an honours in philosophy back in the late 80s at Monash. And since then, I've held jobs at La Trobe and the Australian National University. And I also spent six years working as a philosopher in Denmark before returning back to Monash in 2007. So I've been working in a lot of different places. What was it that inspired you to study disability? My PhD was on... I'm a political philosopher and my PhD was in political philosophy concerned with what it means to treat people as equals and in that PhD I was mostly interested in some of the broader abstract theories of people like John Rawls and Ronald Dworkin but after I finished my PhD I became more interested in what it means to treat people as equals in the context of diversity So multicultural diversity is an obvious example, but even just bodily diversity, differences perhaps between men and women as well. And so then eventually disability caught really caught my attention because in some ways I thought that it was a continuation of the theme, what it means to treat people with very different kinds of bodies and minds equally, but also, you know, a much more in some respects, much more challenging way to think about those questions. Now this is probably a difficult question but would you have a definition of disability? Part of what I've argued in my work is that I think we've spent a little bit too much time fighting over definitions of disability rather than focusing on what justice demands of us with respect to how we treat one another, including how people with disabilities are treated. So I think that historically many disability activists have thought that if 
we fix on the right definition or account of disability, then justice will follow automatically. So, and, and there were some good reasons for that. So many disability activists did a very important job in bringing our attention to our everyday assumption that disability is a kind of medical problem, a tragedy, a deficiency, and a real problem for the person who might be living with that disability. So the focus was on trying to cure disability, pity for those who couldn't be cured, and so on. And what disability activists rightly emphasised was that a lot of the disadvantage associated with people with disabilities was actually caused by social circumstances rather than by any intrinsic feature of their bodies or minds. So people in wheelchairs um, might have trouble accessing educational or workplaces, educational institutions or workplaces because those buildings were not accessible. And, and you can take that idea as far as you want. So deaf people who sign might only be disadvantaged because they live in an environment where not everyone can sign. So I think it was a really, really important thing to emphasise how if we were going to focus on some of the uh, measurable problems associated with disability, so for example, lower incomes, lower educational outcomes, social isolation, then we shouldn't just assume that those problems are caused by people's bodies and minds. So I'm very sympathetic to all of that, but I think one thing that then happened was that we got so caught up in how to define disability that we didn't address the hard questions, which I don't think is ever... No philosopher will ever think hard questions of justice are just going to be resolved by definitions. So the way I prefer to work with it is to say this, that the, the disadvantages, however you might... Whatever you might count as disadvantages, it might be poverty, it might be discrimination, it might be social exclusion the disadvantages associated with disability are always a kind of interaction between this person and his or her body and mind or his or her features and the environment in which he or she finds themselves. So disability is always an interaction, a complex interaction between the person and the environment. And that's the case for all of us. So, you know, I might not have any problem navigating stairs because I live in an environment where stairs are a certain height, right? So, and they, they match my body, they, you know, they fix to my body. But I could live in an environment where people are just much, much taller than me and stairs are built differently and then I might have great difficulty going up those stairs. So environments tend to be built around assumptions of what people can and can't do or what people's bodies are like. And that can be enormously disadvantageous to people who have very diverse bodies and minds. Could you explain about some of the common experiences of disability? Well, I think that the, the most obvious and incredibly widespread experience is just simply one of discrimination. So um, people with disabilities are still subject to widespread, overt discrimination, ranging from employment to education, to just even trying to do their shopping. And related to that, people with disabilities are also widely experienced inaccessibility. So the way in which 
the built environment is designed, the way in which technology is developed um, and the way these things are utilised can also just simply exclude people with disabilities such that they aren't able to have equal educational opportunities or equal work opportunities. Then in turn, that sort of discrimination and exclusion is bound up with poverty, it's bound up with social isolation, not being able to engage across a wide range of community activities and ultimately can be bound up with terrible loneliness and, and social exclusion. I think it's also a very common experience for people with disabilities that they also don't enjoy a kind of control over their lives that many other people just take for granted. If people with disabilities are using support services, whether it be accommodation support services or personal care services, they will often experience a sort of gross paternalism about how these services are delivered such that they don't get to exercise control over where they live and what they eat and how they're showered and so on. So it's an, it, it can be given social environments, an extremely challenging thing to be disabled in a society like ours. How do you think that people with disabilities can obtain dignity? In my book, I argue, in the history of philosophy, there's a lot of references to dignity. And I suppose in the last five years or maybe 10 years, people, philosophers have become interested in trying to understand what this concept means. And I think most philosophers think what it means is that all human beings have inherent worth, that we are all equally morally valuable. And I accept that that's, of course, one perfectly plausible account of what dignity means. But in my book, I argue that dignity also has something to do with equal status. It's about that we, that we have dignity when people in society treat us in our social engagements and social interactions as having equal social status. So if you think about... These examples are less familiar to us now in the contemporary world. But if you think about caste societies where some people are not even permitted to meet the eye of a superior or share a meal with them, or if you think about, for example hierarchies where you bow and curtsy to certain members of the royalty. We, what that indicates is that we've traditionally always had very, very pronounced norms for how we interact with and express the idea that some people are superior and some people are inferior. And what I argue is that for people with disabilities, along with a number of others, so for example, people who are poor, people who are homeless, it's just a common everyday occurrence that in interacting with others, whether it be in shops, on the street, at school, at work, that one is treated as a social inferior. So one might be subject to condescension or extreme impoliteness or um, people might feel entitled or justified to ignore etiquette around privacy, for example. And so I... I argue that philosophers have neglected these sorts of more informal social exchanges and yet they're extremely important to understanding why people with disability often experience 
everyday treatment that indicates or sends the message that they have lower status, that they're not equal to the rest of us. What is the connection between dignity and status? So I guess it's what I've described, that you have dignity when you can, when you are routinely treated as an equal, when others are routinely polite, they meet you in the eye, they don't condescend, uh, they assume that you can and wish to exercise basic control over your life. When these things are just ingrained and normalised, as they are for many people who are lucky enough not to be victims of stigma, then one enjoys a kind of equal status. And what is dignity as bearing? I argue for, for disability, dignity as bearing is less important, but it is, again, another, another conception of dignity that people have used in different contexts. So people say that someone like Nelson Mandela had great bearing um, dignity because under extremely difficult circumstances he, he was able to carry himself with calm and poise and so on. Some people now say that someone like Donald Trump doesn't have much dignity because of the way he carries himself, right? He's prone to outbursts. He doesn't tend to rise above and so on. So... That's not, for me, dignity is bearing is not, is an important conception of dignity. It helps to explain why we admire some people and admire other people much, much less. But it's not a notion of dignity that's terribly relevant to questions of justice. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking with Dr Linda Barclay about Disability with Dignity. Do you think that human rights offer better prospects than theories of distributive justice for advancing justice for the disabled? I think people think they do. I think that human rights have become the lingua franca of our discussions about justice now. So whenever people want to talk about inequality or what they perceive of as an injustice, they'll very quickly flick into the language of human rights. And that tells us a lot about the power of human rights, I think particularly in the last 20 years, to have captured the imagination. And certainly we now have a convention on the rights of persons with disabilities, an international convention, which nearly every country has ratified. So that offers us a lot of promise. And I think indeed that we ended up with a national disability insurance scheme, which is not to say we've ended up with a good scheme, but we did end up with a scheme, largely as a result of the government ratifying that convention. So there's there's definitely evidence that having a body of international law, human rights law on disability, can move things along um, and can help. But again, I think people are sometimes very naive about the power of human rights. And that's a, again, that's going to be especially the case in the context of disability, because as any person with disability who's been involved in these issues can tell you, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability, just like discrimination law in Australia, builds in this idea of reasonable accommodation. So the idea is roughly this. 
a shopkeeper whose shop is not accessible by a wheelchair, for example, it has steps up to the shop, doesn't discriminate against a person with disability and so doesn't run afoul of the law or human rights, if that shopkeeper can argue that it's not reasonable to expect them to modify their building. So the idea is that the environment only counts as discriminating against an institution, a building, a business, only counts as discriminating against a person with a disability if it's reasonable to expect that building, that institution to make some kind of modification. And so it just, so for example, the universities, they're very big and they're very wealthy institutions. So by law, they're required to provide translators, for example, for deaf students, because that's a reasonable thing to ask a very wealthy institution to do. But if you're a shopkeeper and a deaf person applies for the job and they say, well, I need a translator, I need you to also fund a translator so I can perform this job and you only have a three-person operation, that's likely by law to be deemed an unreasonable request. And so you're not discriminating against that person in not employing them. So what does all that mean? My view is that it means human rights are very, very indeterminate. Exactly what our rights are in the end is going to be worked out in many cases by thrashing it out in a community uh, with respect to what counts as reasonable and what doesn't. And my view is that what ends up happening there is whether explicitly or implicitly we end up appealing to views about distributive justice. We end up appealing to what's a fair expenditure of resources, what's a fair distribution of resources from one group to another. So I don't in the end believe that all human rights are going to be able to get as far or human rights articles are going to get as far without adding a whole lot of stuff about distributive justice. Could you explain about the relationship between capability approach and human rights? The capabilities approach as a theory of justice has kind of swept through philosophy and many other spheres as well. I think it's captured the imagination of people outside academia and philosophy. And it was developed as a response to a very common assumption that we... So I've talked about the disadvantages associated with disability. And commonly we just assumed that those disadvantages meant lower wealth, lower income, right? So that we'd measure how well people were doing according to how wealthy they were or how much income they had, just to put it crudely. And the capabilities approach said that that's just not a sufficient measure of how well people are doing and how we can compare people. And that's really obvious in the case of a person with disability. Don't get me wrong. If you have complex needs, money can make the world of difference to your ability to ensure you have good physiotherapy, good rehabilitation care, good personal, high-quality personal care services. But nonetheless, for many people with disability, money is not the issue. The issue is that a building is inaccessible. The issue is that people discriminate against you. Right? The issue is that you're socially excluded in many ways because you can't get on public transport. So the capabilities approach says we shouldn't focus then on money. 
we should focus on what people are able to do and be. We need to specify what kinds of things we think it's important that every person in our community has the opportunity to do and to be. Um, and then justice requires that we do what we can to ensure that everyone has, a, has the opportunity to do and be those things. And I've argued I'm largely sympathetic to the capabilities approach, but I've also argued that we shouldn't underestimate that it is potentially quite problematic for some people with what are often referred to as very profound cognitive impairments. So I'll give you an example. Martha Nussbaum is probably one of the most well-known proponents of the capabilities approach. She's an American philosopher. And she argues, well, certainly one of the things that all people need to be able to do is to be politically active, to have the opportunity to vote at the very minimum, to be able to run for office and to be able to perform jury duty, whatever the kind of activities you think are important to being an active citizen, political citizen. And certainly the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities also specify that they're human rights. But these things just stick their head in the sand with respect to a very small number of people with, again, what are preferred to as, often referred to as very profound cognitive impairments who simply can't vote, would not be able to sit on a jury and certainly wouldn't be able to perform tasks in a political office. And so for me, philosophically, far more than physical or sensory disability, profound cognitive impairments are the really hard cases. And I worry about an approach like the capabilities approach that says these are the things all people need to be able to do and be to live a dignified life because it potentially carries the implication that that small number of people who simply can't do some of those things because of their impairments end up being cast as sort of almost subhuman or as failing to live a dignified human life. And I, I think that's an implication that we should always try to avoid. So the task is, and it's not an easy task, is to come up with a theory of justice that doesn't have any of those implications, but still does more for people with disability than simply talk about income and wealth. What are some of the different ways in which others can fail to treat people with disabilities as having equal status? So I think... The most obvious ways are discrimination, so particularly overt discrimination where someone is simply assumed to be not able to contribute, um, not a productive member of society, not a contributor in all kinds of other ways to society. So discrimination is a widespread problem in which when we discriminate, we make it clear that we don't think anyone, that these people whom we discriminate against have anything to offer, that they're not our equals. But... What I've also argued is that I think that we also treat, fail to treat people as our equals when we design buildings on the assumption that they won't ever need to come along and be part of whatever happens in those buildings. Even subtle things like um, at my university when they designed a new building for environmental reasons, they wanted those round rotating doors because they're better at keeping warmth in but of course you can't get through a door like that in a wheelchair. So they had 
other doors on the side that would open out for a wheelchair, but they wanted people who were going to use those doors to have a key card to stop people who, could, who weren't in wheelchairs from using them. And even that, thankfully, that idea was shouted down as it should have been because even something as subtle as that, the idea that some people would need special permission, a special card to enter a public building can be a way of signalling that someone's not an equal, not to mention the fact that you can also just hopelessly inconvenience people. And I also argue that we have to be better at talking with and to people with disabilities in the same tone of voice, with the same kind of politeness, with the same norms of etiquette and decorum as we do with people without disabilities. So uh, just one simple example, Stella Young, of course, was an, um, a very prominent disability activist in Australia, and she gives a really great example, which many other people with disabilities have talked about, how when she used to catch a train to work in the morning in her wheelchair, Sometimes people come up to her and pat her on the arm and say, I just wanted to say, I think you're fantastic, you're so brave, you're an inspiration. Now, there's no doubt that people mean well by that. They're trying to express their admiration. But what they're actually doing is being extremely condescending. They're saying that, I would just assume someone like you would hide at home and not be not be an active contributor to society and the fact that you've overcome these obstacles to contribute is just amazing. And so to me, even some of our really well-meaning attempts can, can actually fail to treat people as equals by being condescending, by revealing assumptions about them as fundamentally deficient or incapable that are just, just false and just incorrect. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I, I think that if you're not 100% sure about what you're going to say and how it's going to make the person feel, it's best to just keep quiet. Yeah. Say nothing. <laughs> yeah, I think most of us, all of us might need help at some time. So, you know, I've had an experience of having a bad back and not being able to get my luggage up in the overhead compartment of an aeroplane, right? But if that's the case, then I can ask someone for help. As a woman... I certainly wouldn't want a man just jumping up and offering me help by assuming that I couldn't do it myself. And again, I wouldn't be inclined to pile on to that man. I, I, I'm happy to appreciate his intentions are very, very good. So I would thank him for his assistance. But I would actually prefer that assumptions about my relative weakness just weren't made in the first place and that people had confidence that if for some reason or another, and this is not just about disability, this is all of us at some point will need, will need some extra assistance. We have confidence that people will, will ask for it when they need it. We don't have to rush in. No, that's a very good point. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. No problem, Beth. Thanks for inviting me. And I've been speaking with Dr Linda Barclay about Disability with Dignity. Hope you've enjoyed the program today. I've certainly enjoyed your company and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.